welcome to the Super Freak Media Podcast, No Ghouls Allowed. I am not your usual host, Jono Butler, because this month the girls are taking over for Women in Horror Month. So I am your host, Charlie Clark. And joining me today, we have Sarah Thomas. Hello. And Laura Van Leeds. Hi. Welcome, ladies, and happy Women in Horror Month. In this episode, we'll be talking about how the roles of women have changed in horror, both in front and behind the camera. We'll be celebrating our favourite final girls. I will be testing Sarah and Laura's knowledge in a final girl-themed quiz. And we've got a very special guest, director of Censor, Prano Bailey Bond. I will be chatting to her a bit later on about Censor, which has just had its premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. But first, we are going to have a chat about women in horror. So, girls, how do we think the roles of women have changed over the years in horror? Sarah, we'll go to you first. Oh, oh, fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> it's usually like a ladies first thing, but that doesn't really apply. It here, doesn't does really it? apply. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's kind of just such a massive topic and we could probably talk for hours on end about, you know, the history of, of women's roles originally in horror and, and where the hell we are now. So I think the main things for me are that you know, we've we've come a hell of a long way from sort of like whole um, image of little frail lady trying to wiggle out of some ropes as she's like lying on a train track and there's still waves to be made. Um, but there are so many more things that we can shout about, I think, nowadays in terms of roles in front of and behind the, the screen, I think. Yeah, I definitely think it's it's changed in terms of like, roles that are available for women in terms of acting obviously from my point of view as an actress women women's roles in horror have definitely improved I'd say um we seem to have characters with more brain cells um now which is which is great um Laura what do you kind of think like do you think there's been a massive shift as well or I don't think there's been a huge shift from like the women that I see Obviously, I'm not talking about behind the scenes at this point, but I'm talking more about what I see in women in horror. Um, we are still kind of portrayed as, you know, the kind of silly little girl that gets killed first or the person that makes the the wrong decisions and gets wiped out really quickly. But having said that, it has improved, definitely. I just wouldn't say it was huge for me. Yeah, I definitely think we've still got a ways to go and particularly mm. talking more about behind the camera there's yeah. i mean um i was reading an article um about blumhouse and jason blum i believe actually said that he didn't think that women wanted to make horror he didn't think that women were interested in making horror and telling horror stories and he very quickly as understandably so got a lot of internet backlash and retracted yeah. his statement and, and backtracked very very swiftly because of course women want to tell stories in horror and this is something that I'm going to chat to Prano about in a little bit um later on in the podcast it's there's there seems to have been kind of more opportunity for men to tell horror and I think there's this kind of tradition of women being a bit too delicate to tell scary stories and you know it's up to the men to tell the scary stories because oh blood and guts not a ladies thing to talk about um yeah so yeah. yeah like as if my my girlish ways are stopping me from stepping up rather than I don't know maybe a system that's completely stacked against me in every way which possible you know we, yeah we move. I mean yeah we move we move forward and I, I definitely think there there are a lot more opportunities arising but I still think there's like a massive way to go for for female horror makers and writers to to get their stories out there and and like you were saying Laura as well like unfortunately there's not as much progress as maybe we would have liked but there is progress and let's hope that obviously at the moment we're kind of on hold a little bit with with the pandemic but let's hope that this year, once things get moving properly again, we can push forward um, as women in the film industry. So, yeah, I was having a look about prolific female horror directors. And the one that kind of stuck out wasn't actually until 1966. Now, if you think like 
how many horror films were being made way before that time by men. The first prolific female horror director that I could find was Stephanie Rothman. And she made two films in 1966 called Bloodbath and Track of the Vampire. So they sound a little bit Hammer-esque. But yeah, if you think about all the films that were made way before that. Mm. But then there's probably like a massive gap between when the Universal Monsters and those kind of films were being made. And then we have to wait all the way to the 60s to have some kind of prolific female director i mean somebody is probably going to correct me in the comments of the podcast that i'm i've missed somebody really obvious but when i was doing a bit of research for the podcast that's what i what i found was 1966 that's really late super late in regards to horror definitely and like i kind of look at sort of um some female horror directors of like recent times i suppose and and kind of intrigues me to know what their background is and what their story is in trying to get these films to come to light so people like Anna Billy who obviously directed The Love Witch and Jennifer Kent The Mm -hmm. Babadook and I just think you know how how many years have they been wanting to try and make this film when when did they get this opportunity to do this and how different would it be for example compared to you know the male household names in horror in, and I guess it's hard no matter who you are to get your first break and that first big deal with you know a film company but it, it really intrigues me to sort of see you know what what did they have to do or what steps did they have to make to, to get those films actually into into cinemas and in front of people. So we'll get into the real meat of the episode now, which is going to be celebrating our favourite final girls. Um, Before the episode, I asked you both to pick your favourite final girl. I've picked one as well. I'm not going to go first, but I'm just going to put it out there. Like, there'll be no surprises who I've picked. Um, (laughs) You both know because we're friends off of the podcast. Obviously, you know who my favourite final girl is. Um, So we will start with Laura. And show some love for your favourite final girl. Yours is a bit of a... I know who yours is. So yours is a bit of an obscure one. So I think it'll be nice to start with you. Yeah. Okay, cool. I was hoping that I can kind of explain myself (laughs) to the people out there. Especially those who know what I'm about to say. Because like you said, it is obscure. And depending on how good you are, it might not even be the same answer for everybody. I wouldn't know. But my final girl is um, Sam from a game called Until Dawn. Now, Until Dawn Mm. is a, well, I played it on the PlayStation. I'm assuming that's the only way you can play it, but I'm not sure. Um, Yeah, so it's called Until Dawn. I played it on PlayStation. It is a decision-based consequence game. So you play through as a a team I'm going to say a team a team of people to start with who um start out in kind of like a what should I call it like they're they're on a like a break like a weekend break or something like that but it's kind of like a reunion I don't want to give too much away in case you want to play it but basically they're on this break and they're in this cabin in the woods and um basically you play through each character's little segment like one after another and you make decisions based on what's unfolding around you so it's kind of like if you make certain choices earlier on it will change the gameplay later in the game for you and it might influence the certain things that you're presented with and the situations that you're put in so obviously sam the character i've chosen is is there from the start when you play through the game as I did, you will end up having to save or not save all the characters. The aim of the game is to to keep everyone alive at the end of the the weekend or the the day or whatever it is. I think it's 24 hours. Um, But depending on how good you are or what decisions you make, you know, it could (laughs) decide how many people you come out with. For me, Sam was my final girl. (laughs) I did not manage to save anybody else. And she was the last one for me. And I really liked her, so oh, I was quite glad, wow. to be honest. She was my yeah, she's definitely character. the most likeable out of everyone, isn't she? Yeah, there's a few people that you're like, ugh, just be gone already. But yeah, yeah. she was my yeah, favourite. She when, did survive. 
yeah when when i played it through with with dan we um we got almost everyone we lost one with that. a stupid decision at the end and i was so so annoyed it was one of those things where it's like do you run or hide yep. and we were like yeah. just run just no. go and we were like as soon as we pressed it we were like no oh my god we should have got her to hide damn it so oh god. yeah i mean i love until dawn i think the the same game house has released two other yeah. entries not related yeah. mm-hmm. but um there's man of medan and little hope and i uh, man of medan sarah i know you're playing man of medan at the moment that's it's okay. It's okay. It's not as strong as Until Dawn. I think the kind of payoff at the end's a little bit weak. Little Hope was just a massive disappointment. I, I was so sad. I thought it was going to be really cool. Do you think but that yeah, I do agree, Laura. Oh, honest. did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh. See, I thought Salem Witches, I thought it was going to be really cool and it just was a bit like, oh, wasted opportunity. Mm. But yeah, I do agree with you in Until Dawn. Sam is definitely the character that I think you root for a little bit more. I mean, in many ways, she is kind of a bit traditional final girl. She is, you know, very blonde, very pretty, very, you know, you know, typical ticks all the boxes. But then... She is a bit of a badass as well. Like she gets to a point where she's like, "Yes," and you you don't want her to die. Well, so she you, spends all I think you kind of find yourself in a bath towel, doesn't she? Like most yeah, she'll cliffs and and do all this awesome shit just in a bath towel. I'm like, imagine if I, if I was in that situation, I'd just let myself die because no one needs to see me in a bath towel. <laughs> Sorry, me and my brother played it three words and. Um, we just came to the conclusion that if maybe if you run a bath, the second you get into a scary situation, you'll be fine. Like, mm. because the bath saved her, ultimately. It really she spent did. so much time yeah. there. I mean, it was a nice looking yeah. bath. I mean, if I was going to, you know, have a bath in a scary cabin in the woods, I mean, it's a pretty nice bath. Sam does kind of tick a lot of boxes of those, you know, horror tropes of she has to run through the woods yeah. flailing around in not a lot of clothing Mm. so i suppose in many ways the game's not as progressive as maybe we would hope that it would be but she's still a pretty badass character and the game still sort of follows i guess the generic tropes of who goes first so you've got obviously jessica um which sort of follows her sort of having to be rescued first and then we kind of Mm -hmm. see a bit of a shift based on how you sort of play as these characters and I think is it when you press the pause button you kind of see your relationship with other characters and sort of see how your sort of personality traits have kind of developed based on your own decisions I think that's quite cool because you can kind of give say quote unquote the weaker characters the weaker female characters more of an option to be a bit more flippant and a bit more you know headstrong rather than submissive I suppose but Sam's definitely the one out of most of them dialogue actions which kind of speak volumes in terms of you know she she doesn't mess around here she wants to save people she doesn't just want to sub- make it until dawn um but yeah. she, she she actively wants to do good by people which is a really good trait to have i suppose as a final yeah. girl did you both come out with sam being alive yes, yes. okay that's interesting i wonder if, if she is the, the one that that lit on everybody's that'd be interesting no i think you can kill everyone i think Um, yeah if you mess up at the end you can kill everyone (laughs) i've seen like a few clips of it because there was a point where i was a bit obsessed with the game so i kind of once me and luke played through it i was like right what are the outcomes like what if i'd have done this and and knowing how close you are to killing someone in a stupid way it's just like oh my god (laughs) what the hell Sarah, do you want to go next? Sure. I mean, mine is definitely very run-of-the-mill, kind of boring, but I suppose in in my own ways there is a reason why I've picked this particular character, and it's because I spent a lot of my time at college studying this set of films and kind of it's kind of introduced me to sort of feminism in film, like female horror theory, so like the likes of Carol Clover and, and sort of reading into you know different different uh academic readings like that so i have chosen ellen ripley from the alien series 
and it kind of comes as no surprise as, as to why she's you know understated awesomeness in in Connor, not just through the actress obviously queen herself um but just an, an incredible character and kind of during this time for me i was studying my a level a levels at college and i'd taken like media and film kind of on a whim first starting to get into horror trope and sci-fi and learning about all of this stuff and it was kind of at a time where we instead of doing more essays we had obviously more practical projects and uh, options to create shorts and pieces of media and I think like when I told my lecturer yeah I want to make a horror I want to make a short psychological horror she was like oh okay then as if like that was just the most bizarre thing in the world and I was like well this isn't really a problem is it and she's like no 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 I I don't doubt for a second that that you won't do a good job it's just very shocking and I kind of once watching like Alien and Prometheus especially it was kind of a case of why why is it so strange for me to want to do yeah I was gonna say why is it shocking so that and that was all kind of happening all at the same time so this is kind of a personal one for me so um Obviously, I think her and her actions, I'm going to talk specifically about Alien here for the most part, but, you know, like it it takes 45 minutes um, to sort of establish her as like the key player of the film. She's not even the first name in the opening credits. Mm -hmm. And and you kind of sort of met with this sense of, you know, pure masculine spacey spaceship on a super spacey adventure with all the tough, tough, manly men. And then here comes Ripley <laughs> and, you know, she's making decisions for herself. She is obviously suggesting the more logical things to suggest. So, i.e. someone's just been yeeted by an alien. Let's not take him onto the ship because it's breaking the quarantine. Very topical, might I add. Um and she's obviously surrounded by blokes and and she kind of is unapologetic smart but by no means innocent she'll still swear like a like a sailor you know get get this thing off this ship and, and she's me of myself <laughs> yes on it honest to god <laughs> <laughs> and and you know she just doesn't shy away from like the characteristics that make her still human and relatable so i she still saves Jonesy the cat which Obviously, you would go back for the cat and you would save the cat. Um, But in general, just, you know, one of the first kind of essences of the final girl in any sort of cinema that I'd been allowed to watch until that point. And she was just a real biggie for me in terms of what she stood for. She wasn't overtly feminine. She wasn't overtly masculine. She was just unapologetically her I loved it. Yeah. She's fabulous. I think she, no, she is. I think um, she's possibly, I mean, she does get into her pants at one point, but like it's, it's for a purpose. Like, it's not just for the sake of having Sigourney Weaver in her knickers, which I feel like maybe up until that point, a lot of women in horror were just scantily clad for the sake of the male gaze rather than being for a reason like there's a reason she gets into like a vest and pants and it's for survival it's not just because she happens to have you know been in a shower and some you know mother obsessed psychopath has <laughs> ripped the curtain open and stabbed her and oh look she's naked Ugh. why yeah. kill her in a shower why not kill her in a shower because men like horror and that's what we want to appeal to yeah. um but i like, feel like ripley definitely brings a bit more of kind of like yes, strong survival yes, woman queen. to, well, like, to the world of horror. It's interesting, really, because um, originally, like the screenwriter Dan uh, Dan O'Bannon wrote Ripley as a male, um, and then sort of changed that ideal. And it, and it, you know, brilliant for, for like, obviously Ridley Scott. But I was doing a bit of research into sort of the, the similar sort of releases around that time. So like within that year, and I think it was something like Superman. Apocalypse Now, so obviously very male-dominated. Blokes are going to the cinema, and you'd look at, you know, a movie poster that says 
alien and it's all like cool and spacey and shit. It's it's blokes going to watch this and like I would love to have been sort of, you know, either the partner of or you know, a bloke sort of being used to this saturated, super, you know, blokey, action packed stuff. And then seeing Sigourney Weaver as as kind of like the heroine and the main lead of this film sorting people's shit decisions out and and saving i get well not saving the day but saving herself which i think is in itself like a huge trope you know she doesn't have to save everyone else but actually she's looking out for number one i think there's a lot of ripley traits in um if anybody i mean i'm assuming because we've been in bloody quarantine and lockdown that a lot of people will have had a lot of time to watch films um i think when I watched the Invisible Man remake, when that came out last year, the character, the main character in that has a bit of kind of Ripley survival about her. Um, you know, she's she's careful, she's methodical, she she plans, she thinks stuff through before just kind of going in and, and doing stuff. And she she's not traditional final girl material, but yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of Ripley. I uh I like I liked Alien. I didn't like it the first time I watched it, I must admit. Mm. I had to give it a second watch. Um, but that's me and my dislike of a lot of sci-fi. I struggle with space films. I'm not I'm not a space film person. <laughs> Neither was I um, actually fair for a long time. I, w- I wish I was, because I feel like I'm missing out on like a whole section of cinema that that is good but i think the only space film i've watched recently that i really liked was the martian and that was like six years ago now so wow six years ago yeah feeling old yet always i I feel like it's just because we've um we've lost a year of our lives i'm about to lose two i will have had two birthdays in lockdown oh (laughs) Oh, you've got to laugh otherwise you'll cry So we have. I wish the listeners of the podcast could just see our disgusted faces right now of just uh, <laughs> lockdown. Yay. Um, <laughs> so we've got Sam from Until Dawn and we've got Ripley from Alien. It will come as no shock and no surprise. I'm about to verbally diarrhea a love letter to the queen of final girls, in my opinion, which is Nancy Thompson from Nightmare on Elm Street. Now, As you were talking about Ripley, it dawned on me that Nightmare on Elm Street actually came out five years, I think, after Alien. So I'm wondering whether Wes Craven kind of went, hmm, a resourceful final girl. Interesting. Let's do a bit more of that, shall we? (laughs) Um, But to me, Nancy is like nobody else could have taken on Freddy. And let's face it, in the sequels, Many of them are bad, we know that. But nobody really does take on Freddy in the same way that Nancy does. And I remember watching Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time a little bit too young. Let's say I think I was about 12 or 13. Gave me horrendous nightmares. And um, up until then, a lot of women in film in general to me weren't just, not just horror, but a lot of women were a little bit pathetic in films and it was <laughs> all kind of like oh i need the man to save me i need the man to save me but i think nancy was the first woman for me that really flipped that on its head like glenn is shit he falls asleep he does not save her he gets sucked into a bed and splurted out into a pile of blood spoilers but if you haven't watched nightmare on Elm street well why are you listening to this ago. podcast? So tough shit. <laughs> <laughs> but Nancy, she's resourceful. She studies booby traps. She figures out ways of keeping herself awake. She, you know, she, I mean, it's a bit obsessive and stalkery, but she goes to the point of learning everything she possibly can about Freddy and about sleep and about all of these ways to trap him that she can't possibly lose against him. That was really refreshing as a viewer. I remember studying, um, similar to you with Ripley, um, Sarah, when I did my A-level media and we did genre study and we did horror as our genre. And um, Nancy was one of the final girls that we kind of looked at. 
I think like my drama, uh, my drama teacher, my media teacher, like fueled my obsession with her because she was like, why is Nancy different from traditional final girls? And I think I remember just writing like an essay about how much I loved her and how clever she was and how smart she was. I mean, she turns her house into like, like the opposite of a fun house. Like basically there's nowhere Freddie can go once she's in to the dreamland with him where he's not going to get attacked by something she set up. And she's just clever, but she's not like you wouldn't look at her and think, oh, yeah, she's going to kick some ass. She's just a nerdy, nice suburban kid. And she's a little bit normal and she's relatable in that way. You know, she's not the prettiest. She's saving herself like she's saving her virginity for a special moment. Obviously, that's a trope of a lot of final girls. Like they are still virginal. But like she's not like Tina. Tina's portrayed as like the sexy one, the you know the hot blonde who's just having sex and you know ends up getting slashed when she's you know pretty much midway through or just had sex. I just I love Nancy and the fact that there are rumors that we might be getting another outing of Nancy with Heather Langenkamp and another outing of Freddie with Robert England just makes my soul happy because. I do not like the remake. (laughs) It is not good. Absolutely. So it would be nice to see another another outing of of Robert Englund as Freddie and and Heather Langenkamp as Nancy. So please make it happen, Cinema Gods. That would be lovely. Thank you very much. That thank you for coming to my TED talk about (laughs) Nancy Thompson. Before we move on any further, we have got an interview with Prano Bailey Bond coming up, but I am looking over into the corner. And as per with every episode, there is a rustling in the corner. And even though Jono is not hosting this podcast, it would not be the No Ghouls Allowed podcast without Cage Corner. Yes, I have a female women in horror-esque factoid about Mr. Nicholas Cage. We did try and think of, Liam and I did try and think of a female equivalent for Nicholas Cage, but that's kind of impossible because he is a beast that is truly unique um so no female equivalent but i do have a little factoid about mr nicholas cage that also involves the serial killer delphine lalaurie who you may have seen in american horror story she's played by kathy bates who is just queen oh everything queen love her in 2007 mr nicholas cage the eccentric creature that he is, bought the notorious serial killer's house. So the horrible house of horrors where she tortured and ruined and murdered all of those slaves in New Orleans in the 19th century. He bought her house. I mean, does would, did he go and live there? That's what I want to know. I like, why I don't want to know. I don't want to know what he did with that house. <laughs> Sell it for a profit. I mean, Does he still have it? I'm not sure. I couldn't find out whether he still actually has it. I'd be interested to know if he does. What a weird thing. Like, mm, I know what I want to spend my hard-earned cash on, being an eccentric motherfucker in films. I want to spend it on a weird-ass serial killer's house in the middle of New Orleans. Yeah. I mean, you bought it. I mean... Yeah, I suppose. Like, it's just sitting in a bank. Why not spend it on something really f***ed up? I realise I've said the word f- so much. John is going to have to edit this so much. Sos, Johnny. <laughs> not sauce. Not sauce. gift. This is it's a gift. <laughs> <laughs> not a fan of that because, I mean, she is notoriously a horrible woman of horror. Not so mm. much the um, the nice kind of kick-ass final girls that we've been talking about. She she was a nasty-ass b- um, I would not like to set foot in that house. I think there'd be some bad, bad vibes oh, in that house. Understatement. I mean, maybe if, if you know, optimism and, and trying to have it PMA, maybe he bought it so no one would be, you know, allowed to go in there again or just just lock it away forever and then just just 
see you know, throw away this throw is away Nicolas the Cage. Um, no, <laughs> this um, is Nicolas Cage we're talking about. I can joking. imagine him just sitting in the corner, just rocking back and forth, doing something strange. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> Nicolas Cage, oh, like God, no, even thank like you very even much. just the AHS version of that. Whenever you know that happened in any scene it just gave me the utter creeps more than anything else in that show horrible yeah no not okay nasty house. not okay kathy bates has got a real knack for playing nasty Albeds. nasty people yeah i remember watching misery for the first time as a kid again very much too young and just the bloody breeze block and the mallet oh, no <laughs> no thank you we have come to a very exciting part of the podcast now because we have an interview with a very special guest. Um, we are going to speak with Prano Bailey Bond about her film Censor. Censor follows the character of Enid, who sets out to solve the mystery of her sister's disappearance after viewing a strangely familiar video nasty. And we are going to celebrate a little bit about her favourite things about being a woman in the film industry. Hi, Prano. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, it's an honour to have you on. Um, so I guess going back to the start of things for you, everyone's got a different story of how they got into filmmaking. Um, can you tell us a bit how it all started for you? Yeah, um, I actually, my mum my mum went to, she, she trained as an actress at RADA and in my teenage years I thought I wanted to act. I mean, I was always obsessed with with film, but... Um, when I left school, I was like, oh, I want to study acting. So I went and did performing arts. And it was when I was studying performing arts that I first got to direct something. I'd always been quite bossy behind the camera with my mates, you know, making films at home. But um, this was a, it was actually a play by Ionesco, like a surrealist play. And I just really enjoyed shaping something from the outside. But my obsession with film was always much stronger than my passion for theatre, even though I love, I do love theatre. I really wanted to kind of be able to control where people were looking and I wanted to be in real locations. So I quite quickly started filming scenes, uh, you know, out in real locations, the scenes we were doing on that course. And then I taught myself how to edit on Premiere. And I did, actually, I think I did um, like linear, linear VHS editing first because it was quite a while ago um and then taught myself um how to use premiere and basically that was it I was kind of hooked on the craft of it you know I really enjoyed every single aspect from you know directing actors to sound design to like editing and and so I was you know that was what I knew I wanted to do and then I went and studied film and yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Do you think you'd ever go back into acting at all? <laughs> Do you think you'd ever step in front of the camera? I did, actually. Um, I, I have a little tiny cameo, if anybody's got beady eyes, that I'm, I pop up in Censor very, very briefly. Um, but I also did a music video called Poltergeist, and I played all the characters myself in that, which was not about wanting to be an actor. It was actually because I wanted to create something where we had complete freedom time-wise. And in my head, I thought, well, if I play all the characters, we don't have to, like, schedule other actors coming in. Um, it's quite bonkers video. It's really lo-fi, but I'm, I love it. So, yeah, who knows? Maybe again. <laughs> um, I noticed when we were looking through some of your um, past work that a lot of your work has quite a fairy tale quality to it. Um, does a lot of your inspiration come from kind of the old fairy tales or...? Or does it come from elsewhere, do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I love fairy tales, but I don't think I necessarily draw inspiration from them. I mean, one thing I guess that I love about fairy tales, or when I was younger, I read that in fairy tales, the forest represents the psyche. Mm -hmm. And a lot of my work ends up in a forest. But I also think that's, you know, quite a traditional location for scary things to happen in so there could be a combination of those two things coming in but um I guess it's hard to say what I'm inspired by because sometimes you can be inspired by a building you know and sometimes you're inspired by a person or um you know an article or a story it's really can be anything but 
um, it's definitely normally something a bit weird. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, comes out um, for a lot of us when we when we do make films is it's the world around us. It's There's always a comment to be made on something out there. I do have to say happy Women in Horror Month because it is February. Um, what was it that particularly piqued your interest when it came to the horror genre? I think I came to the horror genre in a bit of a weird way because I didn't realise I was making horror until someone else pointed it out to me. Um, so I think that the ideas and the characters that I want to explore are what drew me to horror. So I like really complex characters who maybe are slightly conflicted in some way in terms of their 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 wants, you know, and um, have a darker side or are struggling with a darker side. And I think that horror is such an imaginative genre. So in a way, you could kind of do anything in horror. And I guess when I was younger, I used to paint all these quite weird pictures and making films was like in my head initially a way of bringing some of those imagery to life um so I guess that was kind of my way into horror and then it wasn't until later that someone went oh you're you're a horror director and I thought oh I can see why they said that you know because it is dark and it's got a certain aesthetic um and then I just embraced it to be honest but I I wouldn't say I come to the genre in like a pure horror form it's more like I like exploring dark things. Would you say that as a, a woman working in film and also in horror, that your journey has maybe been slightly more challenging than maybe some of your male peers at all? I always find this question quite difficult because I think making films is hard. For, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. So I feel like in a way it's unfair to some men to say it's easier for them than it is for women. But you know, because I've got lots of male friends who want to make a feature and want to make films and aren't necessarily getting the opportunities either. But I do think that, you know, there's less visibility for women. Um, at the moment, we're seeing a lot of um, really exciting opportunities coming through for, for women. Like there's a, it, maybe a few years ago, it wasn't very popular to be a horror director or to be a female director. And now suddenly horror and being a female director is, you know, the, the flavor of the month or hopefully not the flavor of just women in horror month. But, you know, there's a lot more interest. Um, so we're seeing loads more work coming out by women. And I think that's really exciting. But I guess what's harder for women is stepping up into those bigger budgets and I think that's where there's like a real difference is you know yes lots more women are getting to make films at a certain level but are they getting the opportunity to go bigger um, and we're seeing a lot of female like a lot of women um, sorry we're seeing a lot of actresses uh, getting the opportunity to go for bigger budgets but we can't all be an a-list actress before we become a director yeah. you know some of us want to direct and we want to come through you know the craft route in terms of like behind behind the camera so I think that's where the biggest um you know uh difference is for men and women is men tend to get trusted more quickly from a lower budget feature to be given like a, a massive budget film so it'd be interesting to see if that changes over the coming years with more women coming through at like the independent level yeah I think I think it's certainly on the on the change isn't it but I think we've still got quite a long way to go in many ways so what would you say that your favorite thing about being on a film set is wow that's a really good question um I think it's when everything comes together and you're watching, you're the person sitting behind the, behind the monitor and you're watching what you've written become real. It's quite a weird feeling. And, and sometimes it happens in this really magical way. Like these, there's these moments on shoots where there'll be a scene that just is exactly how you imagined it in your head. And it's quite a surreal feeling. It's, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's like you've taken some idea out of your brain and then it's like been plopped into reality in this mad way. So I think that feeling, it's hard for me to describe exactly how it feels, but it's really um, 
really kind of thrilling and surreal. Mm, yeah, no, I can imagine just the the craziness of just having pictured something in your head for so long, having gone through all the planning, and then it's just there in front of you, just being like, oh, that's uh, that's very exciting. Um, so going back to your own work, um, the Super, Super Freak team first saw Nasty when it was shown at Mayhem Film Festival. That's our local horror film festival. Um, and that seems to tie very much into Censor. Um, would you say it was almost a prequel to Censor in a way? Um, I came up with Censor before making Nasty. So it was a weird one because Nasty is, or it was uh, born off the back of Censor. But it was, um, yeah, but obviously it's a short film. So it it was like, yeah, I guess it is a sort of prelude in some ways. um, But it's a different character and a different story. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you could imagine both stories happening at the same time in this world. You know, that on one side of town is Doug in Nasty and on the other side is Enid in Censor. So congratulations on Sundance. Um, how does it feel having your debut feature being shown at such a prestigious festival? Um, it's amazing. It still hasn't fully... I mean, it's been about a week and a bit since the week and a half or something since the premiere. And it's still sort of sinking in because obviously we didn't get to go this year. Um, so we haven't had the entire Sundance experience, although they did an amazing job of making it feel like a real event and you know it's I still managed to connect with other filmmakers and felt really connected to the audience as well through social media um so it's been a bit bonkers it's it's um still sinking in yeah no it's it's an absolutely incredible achievement um would you have any advice to other filmmakers who are maybe trying to get their films into the bigger film festivals such as Sundance it's tricky to say what the advice would be to get into a festival. Um, I think it's about just making the work that feels true to you and that feels authentic and, um, yeah, like not holding back, I guess. I think there's much more of an appetite for things that are playing with the form or a bit strange and, um, so I think just it's just about working hard and making the best films that you can, really. Um, I don't really know. It's it's such a... I wouldn't say it's obviously not a lottery getting into these festivals, but it's hard for me to say. I think it's probably better to ask Sundance yeah how they make their decisions because um yeah that's that's where I'd I'd go and ask them (laughs) um so when you started writing Censor am I right in thinking that the lead character was originally going to be a man that was the very 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 first idea that I had for the I yeah for the film I initially imagined a man in my head um when I came up with the idea but it really quickly turned into a female character And part of that reason was because, um, you know, we're exploring the video nasty era in the film and uh, there's a lot of violence towards women in those films. And I think that's such a massive topic to cover, but it it wasn't, it's, I think it's an important thing to be looking at and talking about, but it wasn't the, the, the area that I was most drawn to in terms of, um, why I wanted to explore this subject and this period. It was I was much more interested in um, the kind of idea that a censor might think that they're deep down a bit rotten, that that they could be a bad person, and how might that affect them if they believe that the films they're watching could affect them. So I was leaning more towards the kind of you know how. Um, I suppose the violence on screen and and violence in real life and those kind of subjects and I I felt like a female character was a more interesting way to explore that and me personally I I connected with that a little bit more uh, as well because a lot of what I was looking at personally in the film was you know my relationship with horror because as a horror filmmaker you're always asked why horror Um, and and you answer the question in interviews, but then sometimes you go away and think about it a little bit more deeply and go, well, actually, why am I, why do we want to watch this stuff? Why, 
do we want to make this stuff? And, um, and I think, you know, making her a female character, I guess me personally, I could connect to her in a certain way and it excluded certain, um, sexual violence, uh, themes that I perhaps felt would take over the, the project. But I did co-write it. I co-wrote the film with, with a man called Anthony Fletcher. So, um, yeah, but I think by the time we really got into the writing properly, uh, it was a woman. So the themes of censorship and the idea of, you know, protecting people from the horrible things in the world, they're still so relevant now, probably, you know, with so, more so with social media, we're so exposed. Do you think that kind of social commentary was something you were particularly aware of and conscious of when you were writing? Yeah, you're always asked as you're developing a project and looking for finance, you know, why have you said it then? You know, this is so current. Why aren't you making this about a film sense of working today? But there were a few reasons why I wanted to set it in the past. And that's because hindsight is a fascinating thing. And when it comes to the video nasties themselves, we can look back and go, wow, that was a hysterical reaction. And I think in some ways that allows us a little bit more um, objectivity about how we're looking at things today but then I say that and then I think I, I, I'm not sure about the social media topic because um, I guess that is you know that is one of the uh, things that we're all worried about in terms of like today in terms of how how it's affecting us but I think it's different with that because you know as we've seen there's like social media has a political power and can do things like swing votes and there's algorithms that mean we're being shown certain things and not other things which also obviously comes into censorship or what's being like curated for you so that you think in a certain way and I think that you know is it the same as the video Nazis or not I guess we'll find out as time goes like maybe in you know 30 years time someone will make the you know censor of the social media like today yeah I mean it's certainly a, a fascinating subject um within censor there's films within the film itself there's short films um did you enjoy the chance to experiment with lots of shorts still within a feature yeah yeah it was really fun because you're getting to recreate the you know video nasties in a way or like certain you can lean into certain styles so you know, for my crew, I was referencing very specific video nasties. So um, there's one that's kind of, I was like, this has got a little bit of blood on Satan's claw in it. And then others that I was looking at things like House by the Cemetery and more kind of Lucio Fulci stuff. And um, and I think me and my crew all really enjoyed that. Uh, so it was a bit of a delight. If you had to describe Sensor in three words, what would you what words would you pick? Mystery, psychological, um, video nasty, although that's two words. <laughs> we can hyphenate yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Well, the last year, um, obviously, with everything that's happened in the world, has forced filmmakers to get even more creative in the way that, you know, we create work. Have you seen anything particular that has like inspired you or or made you go like wow that's that's so clever the way that they've they've managed to create that over the last year I think host you know my friend Rob Savage uh made host and I you know the 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 way that they came up with that film in like what 12 weeks I think they made it in it's just nuts and look at the success of it and how it's kind of really connected with people because it's about the time that we're in I think that's really, really exciting to see. And they did such an incredible job considering, well, they did an incredible job full stop, but then you put, you know, into that mix, the fact that they made it all in lockdown where we're all sort of working remotely and stuff. I think I was super impressed by that film. Yeah, it's certainly a feat of, 
you know, a challenge creating work at the moment um, with all the restrictions in place. Um, so speaking of things that you've watched and that you enjoy, we asked you to give us what you, uh, your favourite horror film. And one of the options that you gave us was The Shining, um, which we also love here as well at Super Freak. What is it about The Shining that you love so much? I was obsessed with The Shining to the point where I used to watch them, watch that film like every week pretty much. And it was everything from the atmosphere. There's something so chilling about about that film, um, that atmosphere, the music. Um, I love the fact that, I mean, I even read the book just to see how it had been adapted. And I, I think it's just such, I know Stephen King wasn't, you know, overjoyed with it, but I think it's an incredible adaptation. He's taken all the, the best bits and left out a lot of the like longer more drawn out stuff um the performances of course like it's so iconic that film like um you could yeah it's it's everything from the look of it to the performances to the music to the atmosphere to the almost like yeah the there's almost a wink of humor in it as well which is genius it's it's an iconic film there's certainly a lot to spot and remember from it it definitely plays with your mind a lot um so like we've said we've been a huge fan of yours for quite some time now at super freak can you tell us what is next for you um and once and have you got anything planned for the release of sensor to the masses i am developing a couple of uh ideas that are really early stage so i'm kind of just writing basically going into writing and uh yeah watch this space fantastic well we look forward to seeing um what comes next for you like i said um we can't wait to see sensor as well that's uh you know something really exciting for us to look forward to um thank you so much prano for for joining us today and it's been amazing and um we look forward to speaking with you again in the future thank you yeah thank you charlie (laughs) So that was Prana Bailey Bond speaking about her film Censor and celebrating all that is good about women in horror month. Now, I think this is the part of the podcast that Laura and Sarah are both dreading and I get to do my evil laugh <laughs> because I am going to be the quiz master and you guys are going to answer some questions about some women in horror and some final girls. Are you guys ready? You could just see the stress on Laura's face on the video. <laughs> She's going to die. Like, no. literally going to die. Rip. So, um, I am going to um, require a buzzer noise from you both. So I'll give you two seconds to think about it. Sarah, what's your buzzer noise? Uh, Yikes. (laughs) That's how I feel about this entire thing. Laura, do you have a buzzer noise? Uh, Ding. So Laura's going for ding. Sarah's going for yikes. Okay, cool. So there are 10 questions, um, each about a woman in horror. It might be a woman in front or behind a camera. It might be about a famous female writer, or it might be about a woman in a video game who kicks a little bit of ass. Are we ready, ladies? No, but sure. (laughs) Okay. Well, you're not ready, but it's happening. So tough shit. (laughs) Question (laughs) Question number one is Cecilia Cass we've already spoken about is the final girl in which 2020 horror remake is that neither of you know (gasps) boo it is the invisible man point for neither of you question number two who is also known as the mistress of the dark ding was that a ding laura i guess um elvira or yes it is elvira point to laura okay um fantastic so point to laura question number three in until dawn who is the actress that plays the character of sam yikes oh sarah <laughs> hayden panettiere yes it is hayden panettiere. Both, you've both got a point where we've both got a score on the board good times okay Number four, complete this famous quote by Ellen Ripley in Aliens. Get away from her, you... Yikes. Sarah. 
Yeah. <laughs> Two points to Sarah. <laughs> Just saying that as an answer is brilliant. <laughs> Bitch. Um, question five. In The Last of Us, uh, what is Ellie's weapon of choice? The weapon that she uses the most. Yikes. It's going to be Sarah? wrong. Bow and arrow. No. Laura, do you have a counter offer for an answer? I mean, maybe a baseball bat. No, it is a switchblade. Well, of course. <laughs> okay. Question number six. Which actress was shockingly killed off in the opening scene of Scream, despite the fact that she was actually the film's most bankable star at the time? She's also a Charlie's angel. I can see her. I can see her right in front of me. It's me. Nothing. <laughs> Shall I put you out of your misery? Yeah, please. Drew Barrymore. Can I just say right now, <laughs> the pressure is mounting and I am so sorry for any of my friends and family watching who are just ashamed of me. I'm sorry. I'm just going to take back my film degree. I'm just going to give it back to my university because I don't deserve it at this point. Okay. <laughs> Question. <laughs> to be fair, the scores on the doors are not looking good <laughs> so far. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> Question number seven. Who wrote the novel of the woman in black? Oh, the pained expression on their faces is just literally in the book is in the other room. <laughs> it's in my cabinet. <laughs> no, I can't. I don't know whether it's been a long day, but my brain has just stopped working. I feel no, like it's on the tip it. of Laura's tongue. Shall yeah, I uh, yeah, keep a cry when you tell me? It is Susan Hill. Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, question eight. Jill Valentine is part of which branch of the Raccoon City Police Department? This You're is not going Christmas. well. <laughs> This is not. Can we just delete this segment altogether? Delete the segment. Um, <laughs> it's stars. Question number nine. This is evil. But I'll ask you both for a ballpark figure on this one and I'll give whoever gets closest the point. How many times did Shelley Duvall have to retake the famous baseball swinging scene in The Shining? Sarah, what's your guess? 20. Okay. Laura, what's your guess? think more i think like 36 laura is closest so she does get the point but you're oh. still way off stanley kubrick made her retake that scene 127 times yeah Whoa. yeah he was a mean meanie meanie okay final question <laughs> which oscar-winning actress also turned her hand to directing the black mirror episode archangel really don't know I don't think I ever knew that, actually. <laughs> it was <laughs> Jodie Foster. Um, yeah. And yeah, I say that like it was shit in my head, but it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, no. See, this I is going to say thinkly Harvey was... Oswald, but I didn't think that would help. True, true or false always prevails because you've at least got a 50% chance of not making an ass yeah, out of yourself. Yeah, maybe I should have done true or false, but I thought it'd be a little bit mean. Um, so the scores and the doors. Laura, you got two. <laughs> Sarah, you also got nice. two. And Yay. that concludes our Women in Horror Month quiz. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we let the side down. <laughs> truly hard good questions so might, but I, I thought I did quite well with the questions but apparently it did but we didn't do very well with answers yeah you don't have the right you don't have the right audience <laughs> yeah sorry about no. that um, <laughs> um, so uh, we're nearly at the end of the episode guys but um, just like last month we're going to be having a giveaway over on our Instagram which is at Superfreak Media if you don't follow us why don't you follow us go and follow us because there's some amazing content on there including 
Sarah's uh, spooky Valentine's look, which is also on our TikTok as well, which was just amazing. Obsessed. Thanks. Um, and you'll get to see Laura's lovely Scooby-Doo inspired piece of artwork of Prano Bailey Bond, our special guest on the podcast today. So we're going to be having another giveaway, like I said. And all you have to do to be in with a chance of winning some of our Super Freak Media goodies is just like the post. It's that simple, guys. So why not go and enter? And like I said, if you're not following us, please give us a little bit of a follow. So we have reached the end of the episode. Um, I would like to say thank you very much to Sarah Thomas and Laura Van Leeds for joining me today. And also a massive, massive thank you to our special guest. And I have been your host for the episode, Charlie Clark. This is Prano Bailey Bond on the No Ghouls Allowed podcast. Keep it creepy. That's so little, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's always a f-ing quiz when I'm on it. <laughs> it stresses me out. Yeah, I'm very scared about the quiz. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <But> no. 